John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed entry 542.jb0807, certificate number 45417, grade inflation. That's the news from Lake Wobegon where all the women are strong, all the men are good looking, and all the children are above average. Let me take you back, uh, what, uh, just over two years ago in our era. Okay. John, do you remember when we flew out to Atlanta and recorded the very first entries in what would become our monumental work, The Omnibus? I do. I remember us coming up with the concept of Omnibus on that flight. On the plane. I remember the flight attendant came over and said, are you Ken Jennings? This was... Is that right? This was at probably the lowest point in your fame. Yeah, it was a low 12-year trough. (laughs) And you you commented after you had signed her... Her badge or underwear or whatever. You said, yeah, I'm really popular with with grandmothers and flight attendants. And then we... It's because flight attendants have access to your name. Oh, right. If you're very slightly famous, you learn that anybody who can see your face and your name is like 10 times more likely to recognize you than someone who just has one piece. Of course. They're like, who is that guy? And then they look at... They have a manifest. I see. Uh, But then we... We realized that we didn't like the original idea of our show. We came up with Omnibus. We were high-fiving on the plane. The we whole got, time, we were just high-fiving. Yes, like, yes, we got it. And then we went to our corporate masters at How Stuff Works and told them our new idea, and they were super bummed. They did not like it. Because their original idea, which was that we hate on everything, that it seemed to them that the, it would get m- way more clicks. Have we ever said this on the show, that our original idea is we would just talk about... Uh, bad things in, in history and culture. The original the original pitch of the show was the worst with Ken Jennings and John Roderick. And it would be like, this is the worst mathematical formula. And we'd talk about that bozo in Indiana who thought pi should be three. Yeah, or, and or I whatever. mean, there's a way that we could have framed a lot of these entries as the worst if we had just found something that the was... The worst dinosaur, the, the worst, worst battleship. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The worst battle between two cruise ships. But, and, I, and, I, and, at the, and at the end of, or the, I guess at the beginning of every show, we could have said, I'm Ken, and you would say, I'm John, John. and we would say, and this show is the worst. <laughs> uh, you got your air horn. But you and I looked at each other and we're like, this is such a bummer. We would just be, it's just like so negative. We don't want to be that negative about stuff. No, so we decided instead to do a show about the end of human civilization. Right, 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 right. But in a, in like a, in a jovial way. In a perky way. Yeah. But they were really bummed because nobody... <laughs> 
Do you remember how many people didn't know what the word omnibus meant? Or suspected that people wouldn't know what the word omnibus means? I almost think they're not wrong, but it's irrelevant. Uh-huh. The word omnibus sounds Latin and authoritative and, uh, I don't know, not tactical, but governmental in a way. Yeah, here, here. Yeah. It, it sounds like old-fashioned British Empire stuff. I'm not sure I know what it means, to be quite honest, and I have a dictionary right here. Well, and you can also break it down into its component parts. Omni meaning all, and bus, bus meaning bus. Yeah. It's, it's an all bus. It's all the buses. It's Latin for Greyhound. <laughs> but yeah, we got down there and we were in a conference room and I was like, does anybody have a pen? Because I hadn't really thought about it. And you had Starlings as an idea and I had Defenestration and we threw together a couple of shows. I'm, ass- I'm assuming you already had three by five cards and I was just in the, in I had the a toilet. Piece of, I had a piece of a notebook paper from the hotel. You know how they give you four pieces of paper on the nightstand and a pen that writes for like three and a half pieces of paper? These days they do. I still have drawers and drawers of Chateau Marmont pads with pens that have my name in Boston. Well, maybe the Chateau Marmont still has very, no. it still has nice stuff. No, lately they've been just giving you four, four pieces of paper. What? Everything's gone to hell. Well, that's probably, that's just COVID. That's COVID. Too, if you give too many pieces of paper to people, they'll take it home and put it in there next to their toilets. <laughs> But uh, at the hotel, speaking of the hotel, we had, and we met the night before in one of our rooms to try to figure out how the show would work, I right, think. Right, right. Uh, but what I remember about this hotel, which is a little more relevant to this particular entry, is that we checked in, we walked into the elevator, and there was a sign in the elevator. I don't expect you to remember any of this because no, 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 it's kind of weird. I'm with you so far. There was a sign in the elevator that said, uh, how was our service? And there was a scale from, I think, maybe 1 to 10. Yeah. And then there was an arrow saying, only 10 is acceptable. (laughs) (laughs) So the question was asked and answered by the elevator. I don't remember that. (laughs) So the chart just struck me as funny because there was this vast white gulf of, of really grades they did not want you to give them. Right, right. But they were, they were suggesting that, um, uh, well, I don't know. Is that, is, that supposed to, is it supposed to intimidate their housekeeping staff? <laughs> or is it, are we really expected to respond to it? I assume it does two, you know, it does two things for the uh, guest. I mean, on a kind of benign level, it makes it seem like what they're saying is only the top level of service is, is what you, the guest, deserve. If you have even the slightest complaint. Please come to us. Storm down into the lobby and... Pound your fist. We're the kind of amazing hospitality apparatus that will take care of it. Now, let me ask you this. When you get into a hotel room, how much less than 10, uh, like at first blush, if you find less than 10 anywhere, how much of it will you let slide before you actually call down to the front desk? I have almost never called down to the front desk in a hotel. I mean, it's not like you come in and there's like a used bar of soap in the sink, but, you know, I'm always, the first thing I do when I get into my room is call down to the front. Even if there's nothing wrong? Well, no, there's always something. And you, generally- an example of something you would call down for. Well, generally, I ask to have uh, my bed defeathered because I'm allergic to feathers. This is what I remember from checking into things with you. Yeah. I'm like, has the room, and, and so in advance, a lot of times I'll make a reservation and say, no feathers. And so I'll say in check-in, has the room been defeathered? And it's not like there's a swallow's nest in the in the nightstand. You're just talking about the pillows. The pillows and the comforter, the if they have feathers yeah. in them, will make me. I'll I'll climb in, and within four minutes, I'm like, 
you turn into a bird. I'm, it's terrible. It's terrible. I get COVID from feathers. From feathers. Uh, and so I often call down about that. Um, they're just, you know, it's just it like. It seems like you just want to annoy people. Small needs. I have small needs, but they build up to be one giant need, an, a, a pit of need. If you read online reviews of hotels, every one-star review will be like a list of things that has never happened to me in any establishment. Like, I walked in and the toilet was overflowing. I walked in and instead of a bed, there was a uh, wrecked car. You know, people, um. people, it just seems like these catastrophic things are happening to people. And I walk into every hotel room and sometimes it's a little depressing and sometimes it's not, but I've never had a, a problem. One time I checked into a hotel in Crystal City, Arlington, Virginia. I stayed um, in Crystal City. That's that made up city in the middle of the... It's just not a city at all. It's, yeah. just a, it's just a subway stop or whatever. But it was the Crystal City Hilton. I'm not afraid to out them because... Once I got into the room, it smelled really of cigarettes. And I went back down to the lobby and I was like, my room smells like cigarettes. And like, it took me, took them 20 minutes to give me another room. I went up and that room smelled like cigarettes strongly. And I came downstairs and was like, the second room smells like cigarettes. It smells more like cigarettes. And it took them 30 minutes to figure out, put me in a, in a third room. And I went up there and it smelled like cigarettes. I was like, not, this is 2015, like not every room in this hotel smells like cigarettes, surely. But it was early days of Twitter. No, it was two, it was 2012, probably 11, maybe early days of Twitter. And I went on a tweet storm about it. This, by, by name? Yeah. I was like, I'm standing in the Hilton in Crystal City and, but you know, it was a tweet storm. So I, I exaggerated. I said like, there's blood on the floor. There's a cow head in the bathtub. You know? I like how you're saying because it was a public <laughs> forum, I made stuff up. <laughs> and after a while, after about 20 minutes, there was a knock on the door and I was laying in bed, tweeting up a storm, just having a good old time. And I, I, I said from the bed, like, yes. And it was like a stern voice that said, Mr. Roderick, we understand there's some problem with the room. Can you come open the door? Step away from your device. <laughs> and I was like, I'm not opening the door. And and I was tweeting about it the whole time. Like, <laughs> there's a guy outside, you know, he wants me to come out. Anyway, it turned into a big hullabaloo. And, and Didn't he just want to give you a nicer room? Well, That's that, usually what happens with tweet storms. Yeah, but why wouldn't they just say like, here's a key to a better room. Please stop tweeting. But I, but they started, they had some conflict mediation person on Twitter that started tweeting me like, what can we do to make this right? You know, we'll give you five days of free Hilton anywhere. But I was having too much fun at that point. And I was like, I don't want your filthy lucre. Uh, and it, and eventually they realized that I just didn't, I wasn't Ken Jennings. I didn't have the reach to create like <laughs> it. W once it didn't get picked up by Buzzfeed, they stopped offering me anything. They just ignored me. But I think my name is on a blacklist. I assume the hotel had just had like a poker tournament or something, and everybody was smoking in every room. I feel like it. Date all that cigarette smoke dates back to like Watergate years. <laughs> they just never. And there's just no way that you yeah, could pressure you wash those rooms forever and can't get it out. Uh, I mean the the more the less benign ex uh, interpretation of the sign in the elevator saying ten is the only acceptable grade, citizens, would be that. They know corporate is going to survey, you know, former guests. Right. And they want to make sure you know that <laughs> their livelihoods are on the line if you were to say any number other than 10. So it becomes, let us take care of this now 
instead of, you know, it's like never leave a tip under 20%. If something's going wrong, correct it at the moment and then still right. tip. But so you think that that sign came from the local management as a way of insul- you know, like preparing the customer to not rat on them to the big bosses rather than that every hotel in that chain has that sign. I think so because you see it in other industries. Uh, nowadays, the kind of the, the peer-to-peer gig economy means that a lot of us are in the position of rating oh. our every interaction. Please don't leave a bad review with on our, Yelp. With our, yes, with our Yelp business, our eBay seller, our rideshare driver. And a lot of the people in these positions now literally have whether or not they can pay the bills. It now varies on the grade that you, John Roderick, Tweet, tweeting about blood in the Hilton right. can provide. I mean, you can now put people out of work. I mean, you probably did. Yeah. Six six people were probably fired yeah. because of your yeah. tweets. And you feel, I hope so. You feel okay about Yeah, that. sure. There was blood on the floor. <laughs> what were you supposed to do? But I've heard that there are people that are exploiting this, like Yelp exploiters who go to places and threaten to leave bad reviews and then collect free stuff. Oh, yes, I think that is the case. And and I've seen it. And usually people will claim that it's substantive, you know, like my, the entree was cold and they didn't even offer us free dessert. Better make this right, yeah, uh, right. Uh, Thai Garden. Uh, and who knows if it actually happened. But clearly the idea is, wait, I can get free stuff. There's some, some businesses have controls implemented. Like I, I got into a dispute with somebody on eBay one time when the thing arrived and it was not what they described. And I said well, you know, this is bad. And they were like, well, you can send it back. And I said, well, I don't want to send it back, but I think you should make this right because this is this is less of a thing than you advertise. That happened to me once. I bought a bunch of Lego, assorted Lego, and like a third of them were like mega blocks or something. Uh-huh. And I was like, you said these were Lego. And they said, we'll send them back. And I said, no, why don't you refund me some of the difference, you know? And and in my case, the guy said, that's against uh, eBay terms and conditions. Is that true? And and having suggested it now, oh, because I said, you know, I don't want to give you a bad rating. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, you should make this right. And he said, because you mentioned ratings, now it's extortion. <laughs> and I was like, what? You know, like, I'm not going to give you a bad rating. Just make this right. And he was like, that's extortion, according to YouTube or according to eBay terms and conditions. So I ended up just passively accepting that it was lesser. I've had eBay sellers just harangue me for months just because I didn't rate them. Yeah, yeah, Like, it's not just, you know, even not rating somebody is unacceptable in there. And maybe that's just OCD and not any real economic force. But this is a real thing on the internet. You, You know, on Yelp, the average... Yelp score of any business is four stars. It's actually 3.78, but Yelp rounds to the nearest star. Right. So the average Yelp business has four stars. That's average. Yeah. 80%. Yeah. And the implication there is that if you are a four-star business, people are going to think you're not that great. Right. Even though you're four out of five. So this is a real-world example of the phenomenon of grain inflation. Is this true for you? If you look at a, a Yelp review or yeah. something and you're like four stars, what's wrong with that? I know the scale in my head. And I, and so your, your brain just corrects instead of thinking, Ooh, four out of five delicious. Like I'd, I'd go see a movie that was four out of five. You think, well, how can this place only be four out of five? That takes some doing right. Every other, uh, teriyaki restaurant in this part of town is 4.87, 4. Yeah. 4.3 or higher. You know, you've got to literally have 
cockroaches to be a 4.0. Right. Which is weird. 4.0 is good. And that's the paradox of great inflation. Uh, that as uh, there's a seems to be a tendency within systems for ratings to creep upward. Uh, and it's not a problem. You know, inflation is not necessarily an economic problem. You know, hyperinflation. I'm sitting here in front of a $10 trillion Bank of Zimbabwe note that somebody sent us. Right. So obviously there's logistical problems when inflation runs out of control. And if inflation gets out of hand, it can lead to different economic problems. But in and of itself, there's nothing wrong with the fact that a $5 bill today is worth what a $50 bill was worth in 1930. It's, uh, you know, money can can inch upward and nothing goes wrong. But the problem in a closed system like five Yelp stars or GPA is that there's a ceiling. So right. when ratings creep, creep upward, instead of just kind of benignly, you know, instead of hotels being like, well, I guess now 15 is the new excellent. Like the elevator said, there's nothing better than 10. <laughs> that was the elevator's whole point. So you get these systems that are asymptotically approaching a limit. And as a result, it's not just the numbers, the grading creeps upward. It kind of starts to become meaningless. In Seattle, there are health department signs. Every, every restaurant is inspected by the health department. And they're given a rating on a four-face scale. They're the exact same faces that are used to describe uh, how much your labor pains hurt. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it's there's, the, the Dr. Yuck thing. There's like happy face, like super elated face. There's smiley face. There's like sort of me, like no emotion face. And then there's frowny face. Why did we not use letter grades like California? Is this supposed to be friendlier or is it language independence. Maybe it's maybe it's that. It's I mean King County and Seattle especially try to make everything uh uh accessible to people of every language. Mm. I went to a I went to a um, Duwamish River conference one time and they had translators uh, translating in six different languages. But it's, every, hard, it's hard to find the Duwamish to Serbo-Croatian guy. <laughs> but everybody, everybody at the meeting spoke English, and so there was this Vietnamese translator and a Spanish translator and a Laotian translator, and they just kind of sat in their chairs. Now you're just making me feel so bad for the sign language interpreter who had to do our um, our Jeopardy event here in Seattle not long ago. Because uh, yeah, that person was this? phenomenal. Yeah, I mean, what a, she was doing a great work, but she had to try to translate these Jeopardy clues you couldn't really hear, right. and and then all the stuff going on on the screen, plus the three of us riffing on them. She's like, ah! you, you really needed multiple interpreters. <laughs> you needed one person to do Jeopardy, and you needed a whole cast of characters, right? Um, but yes, so the, the smiley faces. But like, what's the lowest face you'll go eat at that restaurant? Because I all the time go to restaurants where I look at the face and I'm like, that's not that great, but I'm here. It's it's very surprising because it doesn't seem to correlate with my own experience of the restaurant. Like sometimes right? like a, just a food truck will have some super happy face and some nice place will have some would rather be somewhere else face. Yeah, I tend to go to places and I look at the thing and I'm like, well, they probably had a bad day when the inspector was there and they've I'm sure they've cleaned up their accents then. <laughs> It's just a little lie you tell yourself. Yeah. Like, these are meaningless, probably. Sort of. I mean, they're here for a reason, and there are people whose job it is to do this. I mean, part of your brain is saying, there's not much of a sample size here. I'm just seeing one sign. Like, if somebody had to come every day and put up. Right. But the, what we find in great inflation is that even in systems like that, 
those numbers are not always reliable. And this is often uh, reported most in the case of academia, yeah. specifically university grading. Uh, as far back as 1894, people at Harvard were observing that too many A's and B's are getting are being given. You know, you, you can find teachers complain, but it's not clear that anybody thought of it as some social ill. It, it may have just been one faculty guy's pet gripe, and it's not like academics are never old, stuffy men with pet gripes. Is there an is there kind of a, an understanding that grades should fall according to a bell curve, and that uh, that the vast majority should be C's, or is there some other idea of what the what the platonic ideal is? I mean, that's the common sense idea, right? I mean, maybe maybe at a naive level, you would think there should be an equal number of all grades. We should have 20% A's, 20% B's, 20% C's, D's, and F's. It's like a flat tax. <laughs> Basically, that's the Steve Forbes idea. <laughs> but in order to do that, you would have to be grading on a curve, or you would have to have a system whereby yes. some people were getting A's for substandard or at least not A work. A moment's thought will reveal that there are more average students in the world than completely terrible students or remarkably gifted students. Right. So yeah, you'd think it's going to be a bell curve and therefore professors should be giving out a multitude of C's, a lot of B's and D's, and a few A's and F's. But there's a whole bunch of reasons why that falls apart on the university level. I mean, first of all, you don't want to be flunking out you're not dealing with the general population. You right. know, a, They're a, already high A private university has already taken in people it thought could do well at its university, presumably. So that gives people a little bit of a of leeway but the grade, to skew upward. But in that case, it would mean that their grades were being calibrated to the general population. That's the question. We're already smart. What does a C at Harvard mean? Does a right. C at Harvard mean the same as an A at... Careful. <laughs> Should we piss off? Any, any San university, Diego, San Diego State. Oh, sorry. We're gonna get so many letters from SDSU. No, no, no. They <laughs> oh, can't, they don't write they letters. Can't, yeah, they can't read and write. Yeah, they're busy, busy surfing. It'll be fine. Uh, so, so the question becomes: What does a grade mean at these higher? Inst- you know, it's a different game than in an elementary school where you're. That's basically it's gen pop, right? Um, and this is the idea of a gentleman C, right? The, right. the. The passing grade, at the end of the day, no one cares what grades you got at Harvard. If you graduated, you graduated from Harvard. No one's ever going to look at your transcript. Maybe. But there's also today, at least, this kind of widespread knowledge that a lot of people get into Harvard by merit. Right. And a huge number of people get into elite universities because their dad or their grandpa did, or sure. their great-grandpa dedicated a wing of the dinosaur museum. They or, marry into it. I don't know how many people's grandfathers dedicated a wing to the dinosaur museum that seems like a small group <laughs> no you, you, that's something you have to keep in mind when you're, <laughs> that's what the dorm computer has in mind when it matches people up <laughs> let's put both of these together their grandpas donated the two wings of the dinosaur museum so there's something that pushes the other way which is uh students at a place like at an elite university i don't know why i'm using harvard as my whipping boy but because, whatever because they, they deserve they it, deserve it. <laughs> yeah like they they're the kind of people that would expect to never get anything lower than a than an A. Sure, they all got straight A's to get into Harvard. And so in some cases their first C ever in their life might might come from Harvard if they were graded according to their peers. I had a C plus in uh, high in junior high in home economics because my apron was a disaster. And I deserved my C plus. But yeah. I, but I wasn't happy to see it there. Did your parents I'm, go down and raise hell? 
No, my my parents were parents who had raised hell. Have I told the story on the show? My so. mom, my mom went to, when my uh, art teacher in third grade was giving me a hard time for not doing the assignment right or whatever. My mom marched in with a uh, a series of pictures I had drawn at home of Star Wars characters. Yeah, and, and showed her look look at this likeness of Han Solo. <laughs> like this is the kid you're yelling at, which cracks me up. The more because I think you about. were tracing those pictures out of a book, probably. No, no, I'm I'm a very gifted Star Wars artist. <laughs> But by, I think by high school, they had eased up a little and let me sink or swim, which I think is the right thing yeah. to do. But that, that did prepare me for eventually getting into hard classes in college where, you know, I was in STEM fields where historically there's less grade inflation because it's quite clear right. who can, who right can, who answers, can do wrong these answers. differential equations or who can build this circuit or who can design this operating system and who can't. And so when I took an operating systems class and found it super hard and got a C, I was emotionally prepared for this. Right. But some of these but, Harvard kids. But when you offered a, a critique of William Carlos Williams and got a C. Well, you, that, that would never happen. Right, Nobody has ever gotten a C <laughs> in the humanities at any American. <laughs> the humanities is where often you see more of this creep. And, you know, it's, it's definitely a system that allows for more, uh, what, subjectivity and more pushback from the student to right. say, oh, what, you disagreed with my take on William Carlos Williams? Like, you're just not brave enough to give me an A for this amazing work? Uh, you know, it becomes easier for weary teachers to be like, whatever, everybody gets an A. Right? And it's, I think weariness is a big part of it. I remember our, uh, when I went to Gonzaga University, there was a, at the end of the freshman year, they gave a writing test to everyone in the school. You were given a few prompts and meant to write essays, and it was, I think, a, uh, either either a standardized test or a way of just measuring the, you know, the the um, basically the 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 basic uh, the mean standard of writing at the college. And you know, I thought of myself as a pretty gifted writer and thinker even then, and wrote this essay that I was so. You know, I was so proud of. Do you remember the topic? No, no, no. It was just some prompt, you know, some prompt, like, what, what, you know, the Milagro Beanfield Wars, whatever, whatever. It wasn't that. But the kid on my dorm floor who was universally regarded as like the jovial jock dummy who, who was, you know, he, he'd gotten in because he was a basketball player or whatever. And everybody loved him and it was not, but no, but he... He was the one that was constantly like, what about everything? Got four out of four, and I got two out of four. And we realized, and we compared the the papers because everybody in the dorm was like, how is this possible? And what had happened was he had followed the instructions. You know, like it was just, he did beginning, middle, end. He, you know, he, he built his little thing according to what they wanted. And I had written this. You're you a know, rebel, Dottie, a loner. I, well, but I just, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd kind of scanned the prompt. Oh, yeah. I've, I've listened to your shows before. <laughs> I, I, have, I, have, I have a very crystal clear idea of how this Milagro Beanfield War analysis went. And they, uh, you know, and whoever it was that was grading it, I'm sure they, you know, they're grading 3,500 papers. And it was probably a, a TA. Yeah. It was a and it was just like, nope, student. nope. You know, this intro didn't. Didn't address the question or whatever. Yeah. And it, I definitely... The, there it, are not three sentences in his topic paragraph uh, <laughs> developing the three paragraphs that are to follow. Yeah. If I had if I had cared, you know, I, that's the type of thing I definitely would have gone and raised hell. And then somebody Isn't higher that, up the chain would have read it and gone, yes, I see. You're a genius. That's fine. Okay. Whatever. Doesn't matter. And instead, the kid who cared actually got the good grade. That's... Yeah. That, 
pisses me off. I didn't. I didn't care at that point. I, I'm okay with this. Yeah, I realize that because you know, I, I don't, geniuses who don't care should not get good grades in Ken Jennings's America. I don't know if you know this, but I only got two A's in all four years of high school. <laughs> what subjects? Uh, one of them was ty- uh, no, no. I got an F in typing. Yeah, uh, it was newspaper. I got I got A's in newspaper because I was because I loved newspaper and I would sit and write. You know, I ended up um, spending a lot of time thinking about our high school paper, and I got I got A's because the the newspaper it, it wasn't even a teacher. He was the advisor. Yeah, um, and he was just like, yeah. I mean, you're in here all the time working. You write a bunch of articles. So A's. same same here. We are, we are both students who were thinking more about the paper more than any class. More than anything else. But you got A's and I was, I mean, I just, I got a lot of D's and F's in high school. I, I, uh, and I this was in Alaska. Poorly. Yeah. Like, right. Can you, <laughs> can you imagine what that would be in the lower 48? Hey, East High was a very competitive, sent a lot of kids to the Ivy League. Is that true? Yeah. Oh, wow. East High was, um, well, you know, the thing about it, and this is a, uh, to your grade inflation topic. Oh, something uh, about the topic? Okay. <laughs> Surprise us. Uh, I, you know, we have a, a lot of friends who live in Brooklyn, mm-hmm. and I have a couple of friends whose teenage kids are trying to get into Ivy League schools from Brooklyn, and it's impossible because Yale or Har- let's use Harvard as an example. They can't take six thousand Park Slope kids. That's right. They have they have a you know a, a ceiling on. There's only going to be ten kids from Park Slope that are admitted, if that, and. Yet they have some slots for kids from Wyoming and Alaska, and so if you get into Harvard from Wyoming, you were a, you were a diver- all these East High kids were diversity hires. Yeah, they were. Because imagine how good it is for the campus to have some kid from Alaska yeah. walking around. You can tell because he's got his he's got a anorak and a that's right bloody harpoon. That's right, a bloody harpoon. Well, a lot of this you know diversity does play into this because sometime I, when was this late 90s when academic grade inflation became an ingredient in the culture war do you remember this yeah it was the first the first kind of what became the a, a way of besmirching the millennials the youngs that they that they'd never gotten a bad grade that everybody just patted them on the bottom and it got written about incessantly i think because these kind of stories are catnip to the older audience reading newspapers, which is stories about how the young people have it easier than you. It was the first boomer versus millennium, uh, like culture war. And I think generation X, this was one that we kind of sat out, right? We have good data now on how grades actually have been inflated at the universities. And the phenomenon is real. In 1960, 15% of grades given at American universities were A's. By 1988, that had doubled to 31%. And by the 2000s, early 2000s, it was up to 43%. Wow. And it's been fairly flat since. But on the average, we now know that university grades in America creep up about 0.1 to 0.15 points per decade. Now, is that – if you go back to 1918, was it only 8% of people that got grades? I don't grades? think we have data. I see. Were there even letter grades? Maybe there were faces back then, but they all had – are you saying smallpox that, uh, or something? Are you saying that in 1918 all universities were like evergreen? <laughs> <laughs> you just rated yourself. Futurelings, in these challenging times, we want you to know that we're all in this together. Are, are you getting emails like this from everybody, from every hotel you've ever stayed at, from every company you've ever bought a USB cable from? It's so exhausting. I don't care. I, it's I. Not only do I not care that Delta Airlines wants to wants me to know about all the things they're doing, but like the person that I, that company I bought a, a friendship bracelet for my daughter for one time, two years ago. I don't, 
I don't know, care what their COVID-19 response is. I preferred it earlier in the epidemic when no one had really anything to say. And so they were all just telling me they were monitoring the situation. Yeah. Oh, thank goodness. I'm, I'm so glad to hear that, uh, uh, <laughs> what, Coles is monitoring events as they develop. I, I hope they keep me in the loop. What I, what I want those emails to say is, um, in these trying times, we realized that we had two layers of unnecessary management in our corporate structure. And so we have uh, laid off seven vice presidents and we have taken their salaries and increased our employee health benefits. I, want, I don't even want them to lay them off. I would actually like them to, to give them up to us oh. to do as we will. What would you do with seven vice presidents? Um, I mean, obviously I wouldn't get my own vice president would, unless this is a country that only, a company that only has seven customers. Would you hook them to a sleigh? I would hook them to a sleigh. <laughs> yeah. Maybe they should have a raffle. On Dasher. One on Dasher. Our, one of our customers gets all the surplus vice presidents <laughs> who screwed up our supply chain with just in time accounting. I want one of those emails to surprise me though. I mean, Delta Airlines sent me one the other day that was like, we're blocking off the middle seats. So... Everyone is. Did that surprise you? There's like a there's like a window seat and an aisle seat now, and it's like, why wouldn't you just? Yeah, like that's how it always should have been. Um, <laughs> you should have just had those big '70s lounge chairs instead of these these terrible little porta potties. What what would surprise you? What about a retailer that's like Nordstrom now only sells um, like full body. Uh, Radiation suits. I mean, the problem with retail is that I was already afraid that retail was dying and this isn't helping. What I want is to not return to normal. I know we have to return to some new normal, but I don't want to get emails from people reassuring me that everything's going back the way it was because the way it was wasn't that great. The way it was was clearly a problem. Yeah. I would like especially big companies to tell me that they have reorganized and that they have a new compensation package for their board of directors, which is not so lucrative for them. And I, and I want there to be more working from home and less commuting and less, uh, you know, I mean, all the things that we all kind of keep hoping. Well, we're speaking to our community, John. What, what, um, what outlandish promises would you like to make them about? On our behalf? Yeah, about the Omnibus uh, in this new uh, world. We, as, as Creators of Omnibus, in these trying times, in this economy, we want you to know that we sympathize with you and that we're doing everything we can to continue to make our quality programming without really changing anything about our corporate structure. We don't have any vice presidents to fire is no. the problem. We were already lean and mean. Ken and I are going to continue to have generous compensation packages as we for both of our employees, as we continue to downsize our two employees, the two of us, we are deeply appreciative because we know times are tight, and we know some people um, are not at a place where they can donate to a podcast they like. And guess what? For you, the podcast is free, as it always was. We we with our compliments, like the New York Times during the coronavirus, yeah. we are letting you listen to our podcast for free. But unlike the New York yeah, Times, except all of our coverage <laughs> is now free. You can do the omnibus spelling bee and the crossword and the Sudoku every day for free. Um, for those of you who have the good fortune to still be uh, gainfully employed in a tricky economy, we know many of you do support the show, and we thank you for that. Anybody uh, who would like to contribute to the ongoing health of the omnibus, 
can do so at patreon.com slash omnibus project. We are here for the duration. And we would like to, again, reassure you, this is not the apocalypse. That should be self-evident by now. Um, what it is is just a colossal mismanagement and um, and bungle job. It's a bungle job, but uh, America has survived many a political bungle job. That's right. And also, you know, this isn't the first time that uh, that people have had to learn not to kiss bats. It's been 100 years since the last time we had to learn this. That's right. So I understand why you don't remember. It happens every once in a while. It seems like some unprecedented loss of certainty, but really, the, the message of the omnibus is that it's not. It's really not. I mean, just the... Um, like just the presidential campaigns of 1972 should uh, should be all the evidence you need that these are not the worst of times. Uh, we've we've seen a lot worse than this. To most of our listeners, that sounds about as distant as the Spanish flu. So I don't know. I don't know if that helps anyone. But thank you, thank you for your support of Omnibus. Yeah, thank you, uh, thank you. If you can support Omnibus at Om- at uh, Omnibus, no, at uh, Patreon.com/slash/Omnibus. And uh, also, do not vote for George Wallace in the upcoming election. Thank you. No letter grade system actually existed before Mount Holyoke College rolled one out in 1897. Really? So before then, it must have just been... You were assessed. Yeah. Or maybe it was pass-fail, or maybe it was a note from the teacher with adjectives. And was a letter grade system... Uh, it was Because I think my dad used to talk about getting... He was afraid of getting an E... Yeah. Uh, which was the lowest grade. That was A through E was more common. And I think it was uh, ambiguity over whether E might mean excellent. Oh, I see. My elementary school had E, S, N, and U. Sure, mine did too. Excellent, satisfactory, needs improvement, and unsatisfactory. Really, you had this? Yeah. I well, thought maybe I dreamed this because nobody else remembers this. No, E, S, N, and U, uh, when I went to elementary school in Washington... I had ESN and U. And then I think, I think in Alaska, we had that too up until seventh grade. And then after seventh grade, went to letters. It's got to be some occult incantation where departments of education were trying to as new, summon as the new, old god as new. As new. <laughs> and so because E could look like excellent, whereas if F meant anything, it was flunk or fail, right. the system got changed to. But all of you, can, you can still change an F to an E. You know, if, sure. you're, if you're one of those kids. <laughs> I was not. I, I never did the Ferris Bueller kind of a... I took pride in my Fs. I never even did the don't bring home the report card trick, which, you know, would have... That almost universally works unless you have a sibling right. screwing it up. Parents don't remember when report cards are coming home. Do you... Um, can you explain briefly why we use a 4.0 scale? Apparently, in the early 19th century, it was just descriptive adjectives. That the, oh. the university professors would give kids. Good, fine. And the funny thing is, um, my kid's school system, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> plenitudinous. <laughs> my kid's school actually does give little sentences, yeah. but they're clearly um, boilerplate Boiler things plate. that they can. And as a result, teachers will always just choose the most anodyne ones. Yeah. So you get, you get your kid's report card back, and it says, uh, Dylan works hard and is a joy to have in class. D- I, Dylan I, work English. Dylan works hard and is a joy to have in class. I'm so frustrated by those. When I get them, I'm like, you have one job, teacher. <laughs> like, write a little paragraph about every kid. But in the early uh, 19th century, Yale rolled out a numerical marking system, and I, I guess to for some kind of examinations. And it was a scale that happened to go to four. So Yale's random choice to go to four appears to have dictated 
the rest of grading in at least American history. We've been slagging off Harvard, but it it was Yale the whole time. It was all Yale's fault. And was it decimalated as it as it is now? I mean, at some point somebody gave a, a three point five, and then that that went crazy. It started out, I think, as just one, two, three, four. And you would say, you know, and you, it would be ESN and you. Number one, the first in their respective classes. Number two, and it was like, it, was like, it would be like Dean's List. You I would see. see a list of which students were ones, twos, threes, and fours. I see. Uh, and then I guess the dawn of science and the need with bigger classes, the need to differentiate more students, right. I assume, gives you the decimal grades. But this became uh, a really hot-button issue in the, the biggest – so the biggest rise – appears to have been concentrated in from the late 60s to the late 70s. Kind of, there was a Vietnam-era explosion in grades. And the explanations for this... That was our time. Have, yes. Like, we're the generation that came out of this. And the explanations for this fall on predictable sides of the culture war. There's somebody who's been very vocal about grade inflation is a Harvard government professor named Harvey Mansfield, oh, which is perfect. Boy, I've read a lot of his think pieces. <laughs> is that true? Well, you know... the. There were. Are you getting him confused with every other cra- no, crabby old white man at Harvard? There were so many think pieces and editorials during this period that yes. you're saying that it was inescapable. I mean, you every time you opened a magazine, there was somebody. You would have thought it was the most important thing in the national culture, right? Because we were what? What was the what was the problem that we were raising a generation of super entitled kids who weren't going to do this? It's the participation the trophy The science thing. was going to be bad. Yeah. It, it, we're, we're not going to – kids aren't going to know if they're actually good at things. Right. Kids aren't – I think the main idea is that the adversity – this built-in idea is that the adversity would have made them better. Right. And if, they're, if they never get a bad grade, they just assume everything is awesome when you're part of the team. They forget how to fight. Mansfield has – yeah, exactly. Mansfield has been vocal about this. He often talks about how he now is forced to give his kids two sets of grades – one for the transcript that nobody will bitch about and one that really lets them know how much they suck. Uh-huh. Uh, because, you know, and he uses language like this debases our common currency, you know, that every teacher who, who gives more uh, lenient grades is basically sure. ruining the system for everyone. It's, it's just like people at a rock concert when, uh, when the band takes the stage, if the people in the front row stand, stand. up, <laughs> they have ruined the show for everyone. Even as a musician, I like that you're aware that the standing people are ruining the show. Oh, yeah. The thing is, from the stage, you want everybody to stand. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. I thought you'd be for those people. Well, you, in a way, but... Uh, and I, I love how it forms kind of a triangle widening backwards, yeah. you know, because if one person's standing, then both people behind them have to stand, and then two people are standing, so four... So it does. There is a domino effect that also happens with grades. So what was the logic behind, uh, or what, what? What's the theory? Well, here's Mansfield's theory, which I'm sure you're going to love. This is the same era when affirmative action started letting minority kids into oh, universities, Mansfield. and teachers felt bad giving the black students the bad grades that, of course, they would have earned sure. for, from their less competitive upbringings. Sure, they and, didn't belong in Harvard in the first place. Why are they there anyway? Uh, I see. So let me just go on the record as saying this kind of race realism really troubles me. Sure. Because he, he, I don't think he has any evidence for this, but he's willing to tell the National Review that it's all the black kids' fault. Right. And, and all, na- all we had to do was not let them go to college. The National Review then has a Harvard professor advancing this theory so they can report it dispassionately but still get it in the pages. I, don't, I couldn't find any study 
on actually where this would have started. And of course, once they're giving, and according to Mansfield's theory, once you're giving the minority kids the the ballooned grades, you have to then yeah, you can't then give the white kids the worst grades. Right. So, I mean, there's probably something to the fact that. I mean, there's a human element in all grading. And in a case where the person grading knows the kids to any degree, and this is probably more true in in primary education, but you're aware of what the struggles are. This kid's got a learning disability. This kid's, you know, got troubles at home. I mean, Uh, some of the justification for affirmative action is that the bias inherent in testing and inherent in this kind of personal grading actually, you know, downgrades yeah. black kids or or uh, minority kids because they're getting because the test doesn't measure yeah. their skill. Obviously they're apt, you know, once they're at Harvard, their natural aptitudes will will shine through. Right. Mansfield is not a believer in this, obviously. So he's not going to let that happen. Right. Um, but there is probably a broader, you know, if we're asking why at this time, there is kind of a that was a that was a time when. Well, also, women were allowed into Yale for the first time. Are you saying that's? The, well, are you no, saying that's dropping the grades? But that Mansfield would have also been appalled, probably by. He's Mansfield splaining. He's Mansfielding uh, <laughs> right and left. But this was the time when maybe there was less of an adversarial relationship between adults and kids, specifically between teachers. You know, this was the first time when a teacher would not have been like, "I can't wait to tear this essay apart." But you know, in coming off of a Doctor Spock era of parenting. Right, and He's also more, he or she is more likely to be like, "Where's this kid coming from? How can I validate this?" Just because there was more of a collaborative parenting was was more collaborative and less adversarial. I wonder how much it also was the kind of campus politics of the late '60s made a clear division between cool teachers and uncool teachers, right. and so there was this new generation of professors that were like, "No, nah, man, I'm with the kids on this one," and. Maybe to a fault. And put, you know, put themselves in opposition to these like, oh, you know, we're, we don't give good grades. You know, what kind of the Noam Chomsky's are going to recognize, they're, gonna, they're going to be sort of politically inclined to say, hey, you kids, you know, you kids with your uh, construction paper theses are, are working outside the box. And so you're going to get as good a grade as as somebody that, you know, is a wonk and a grind. And once that division gets built into academia, that there's two tribes with these two different kind of baseline approaches to grading, or at least, or at least kind of what sure. hazes of bias, um, then you have to pick a team. Right. And because starting in 68, you would have seen more and more hipster teachers and l- fewer and fewer grouchy old teachers as that decade progressed. But the pendulum started to swing back when all these, you know, finger wagging op-eds got written. Right. Universities had, you know, had to face the fact that, you know, they're, they're not wrong. You know, grades had inflated. An A was top of the top shelf work in 1960. And an A was, you know, anything above average in 2011 in, in a lot of humanities. Well, and this was a perfect bugbear for the Reagan administration who was trying to unwind Affirmative action and, you know, and all that other culture. And at the same time, you start to see what we're really grappling with today, which is that this idea on one end of the political spectrum that colleges are are worrisome. Right. You know, that that this is where the kids go to learn terrible ideas of political correctness that are ruining the culture. So 
you know, any take that's suspicious of academia now will find uh, an, a rabidly eager audience. But do you? But but in looking at the statistics and seeing this great inflation as a real phenomenon, where you know, what's the current take on it? Because a lot of these cultural commentators now are also products of of this generational sure. inflation. It may just be like it, like money, where it's inherent in the system that value creeps downward and numbers creep upward. Because if you look at all the other venues where this is true, you know, we mentioned online ratings like Yelp. It's true of, uh, I've got a little list here. It's true of CinemaScore for movies, right. where people see a movie and then give it a letter grade. The average movie gets a B plus on CinemaScore. That's why I feel like my job on my film podcast, Friendly Fire, is to always undercut these two other guys who are like 4.5 it's true this has really created the golden age for uh, contrarian cranks yeah good job and i'm like this is a 3.2 at best and then every all of our fans hate me but again you know once the b plus uh, idea that b plus is average gets baked in right. everybody rightly knows that a c a c movie is just terrible right so somebody like you proposing a more sensible bell curve just seems like they're coming from another planet um, it's true in the NBA slam dunk contest. Uh, one is that, ha- is that a subjective rating? There's a series of, it's like gymnastics. There's I a see. bunch of judges and it's very, and it's more subjective than gymnastics because there's, you know, people are doing crazy gimmicks every year. If you stick your tongue out and, and put the ball behind your back. And really, you know, and, and it's super susceptible to crowd reaction or even showmanship, you know, right. like the, the tongue sticking out, you know, the, some uh, weird, a little authoritative head nod might be good for more points than actually somebody who has much more elevation. Uh, half of all dunks in 2020 were perfect 50s. Wow. Perfect 50s. Is this true at the Olympics? In the Olympic slam dunk contest? Well, <laughs> because Nadia Comaneci got the first 4.0. Perfect. The first, first perfect 10. And oh, the, perfect 10. And the system wasn't built for it. Like, they had to announce right. it as a 1.0 because they had not added the third digit. And and so now in the Olympics, do are, are, are there 10s all the time? I think this is true in any sport with a judge, although it's been tempered by uh, actually assigning values to different oh, elements, sure. you know. But, you know, the thing about sports is also there is a performance inflation. In the case of grades, you know, in high school, American high schools, you can see that grades inflated as SAT scores went down. Uh-huh. So you can assume you're not seeing performance inflation. But the fact is gymnasts are getting better and better every year. Right. You like, can do a triple axel and then you have to do a triple axel. Yes, like the the hardest possible, the most valuable element in three different gymnastics uh, areas uh, is now named after Simone Biles, who invented them all just in the last couple of years. Right. Like, and this was an, an element that didn't exist. She's so extraordinary. It's just amazing to watch. So in an area like that where you're seeing increasingly superhuman performance, right. I guess it makes sense that there would be some inflation. But now this is the thing with economics, right? Your Zimbabwean $10 trillion bill, at a certain point, they're going to devalue the Zimbabwean dollar. Right. And $10 trillion is going to equal one again. I was in Bulgaria when they devalued the leva, and there were in circulation at the same time one leva bills 
and 100,000 leva bills, and everybody understood. Could you tell that the old leva was a was f- oh. f- effectively 100,000? Yeah, they they well, it said 100,000 on them, but also they were the old bills, right? They were the new ones looked different, and they were made out of different material. But you're saying you could give somebody either a yes. uh, an, an old one leva bill or a new six digit leva bill. Uh, the other way around, right? They like they were in they were in circulation simultaneously, and you could pay. F- Pay for a cup of coffee with a hundred thousand leva or with one leva. Oh, I see. And they, they, they were, took off zeros, right? They just understood. Everybody yeah, understood yeah. that these were equivalent, um, and that was uh, that was like a super in-your-face example of this. Mon- money doesn't exist, <laughs> right? Well, but then I, you know, then you cross into Turkey, and they had um, they had hundred thousand and million um, lira lira uh, denominations still in circulation. I remember as a kid hearing about how, you know, in Italy, uh, you know, 100,000 lira would buy you a cup of coffee. And, you know, as a kid, you're just like, wow, 100,000 of right. something. Like, I could go to Italy and be rich. I didn't know what um, I was doing. I went to a cash machine and they were like, would you like 10 million, 50 million, 100 million? And I, I was like, oh. The problem is there's a psychological angle in a lot of these other arenas that I don't think, I don't see come up with money. Like people in... People in uh, Bulgaria probably didn't care how many zeros were after the note. It all seemed fake. You immediately standardized to what's a dinner out, what's a utility right. bill, and so forth. But um, you know, in the NBA, they couldn't just change it, and suddenly now it goes to a hundred because you know th- these are people having fun watching the top athletes in the world. On some level, nobody thinks it's a problem that half of them right. are getting fifties because hey, these are monster dunks. But don't, don't- there was a ca- there was a case last year where John Collins. Uh, there's a lot of showmanship, as I said. Yeah. His idea of a dunk was to jump over. It was in, the game was in All Star game was in Charlotte, North Carolina, and his idea of a dunk was to jump over a miniature replica of the Wright brothers flyer, <laughs> while uh, a bunch of men stood around in Tuskegee Airmen outfits to complete the aviation theme. And Collins himself wore a an aviator's le- old timey Wright brothers leather cap and scarf. Did he get a five point oh? He he did not clear the plane. Broke oh. it in two places. And still got a forty-two. Wow, that's that's NBA great inflation. Even to even point out the psychological angle more uh, fully, we have to look at the case of maple syrup. Are you aware that real maple syrup gets graded? Absolutely. I have I have a little bit of birch syrup in my refrigerator, which oh yeah, you know somebody who makes birch who milks yeah. birch trees. The, the connoisseurs all claim that birch is uh, even better syrup. I don't know, lighter and more. I don't know, effervescent. But yes, yeah, so there are syrup connoisseurs, and even though syrup is now graded with a grade A, then that's the lightest, clearest, most expensive stuff. Often the connoisseurs will prefer the more amber darker grades right you know the grade b it, it, it's kind of like dark chocolate where it's a a refined palate will appreciate the notes of whatever in the grade b syrup. sure the flav but the problem is nobody liked this idea that the the nice stuff was being called grade b right and so olive oil great inf- exactly it's yeah. just like olive oil so grade inflation hit syrup and now all syrups are grade a everybody gets a all syrups get a participation trophy what well, uh, what good is it? Well, they, then they have notes. This ah. is grade A, but it's light amber. This oh. is grade A, but it's dark and robust. So what was grade B now became, becomes grade A, dark, robust. Just because of the psychological effect of saying this is a B syrup was depressing sales and prices. So like money, do you foresee or do thinkers foresee a time when these grades will either be devalued or the system will change? Like I mean, why are <laughs> grades at Yale not now on a 10-point scale rather than a four-point scale? It depends on the venue. Um, 
in in the case of in the even in the case of academia, Princeton tried to set a numerical limit. Hey, your department now has to give only thirty five percent A's huh. max, and it worked, but it bummed out the students. Right. So you're always going to face. Didn't stop them wanting to go to Princeton. <laughs> you're all, you're always going to face that, and often there's even more on the line. You know, at some point, it's you know we can roll our eyes about John Collins getting forty two for the bad dunk, or all these privileged Harvard students um, having a GPA that might be overinflated, hyperinflated. But uh, you know, a life and death case is the case of rideshare drivers. Um, right. In you know, Uber will will uh, hit drivers with low. Ratings, you know, every every uh, drive, you, every ride, you have the chance to rate your driver. Right. And you know that it, unless you're a sociopath, you're going to give them a five because everyone kind of knows that Uber will offer what they call profile deactivation huh. to drivers that are not hitting their targets. And it just depends on what the average is. So if the average in Atlanta is 4.8 out of five, which it is, Whoa. Uber will deactivate 4.6 drivers. Whoa. Which means you you lose your job and can't feed your family, and so Uber drivers have resorted to wearing shirts that say, "If you're alive when you arrive, that's a five. <laughs> I remember sitting with a group of people in l a one time, and the uh, we realized that the Uber app uh, allowed you to see your rating that's given to you by drivers. Yeah, and so we all pulled up our our ratings and we're comparing them. And those ratings were on a, a pretty wide vari- variation. I mean, there were people that had fours as riders, and we were all astonished to find that I had the highest rating of like six people, all of them. And this is based on what the driver thought of you or, what, what, the, he, or what he thought of your rating? What the driver thought of you. At the end of a ride, apparently they rate you as a passenger. And I think if you have a low rating they can pass on yes, giving they, you a ride. They can. And I think they maybe they can can they see what ratings you've given cuz it would make sense for them to just stop offering rides to the low raters. I th- uh, well, who knows. Well, you're very collegial. I would well, expect you to be a five passenger. That's the thing. I I I love talking to Uber drivers and yes, apparently that shows up in my in my in my rating. I was reading about a Lyft driver who put a thing in the back of his car kind of like the elevator in Atlanta that actually oh. says tells you what each one means. And four, you know, five says, you know, basically any ride. And four says, this driver sucks. Fire him slowly. It does not mean above average. Too many of these and I may end up homeless. What? So you have to look at that. And this made the newspaper, I'm sure, because somebody took a picture of it. Yeah, exactly. It goes viral. This is a phenomenon that's been studied a lot in this, in an economy where this is increasingly prevalent, people giving each other these direct ratings. And in one academic study on what they call reputation inflation, they studied a company that uh, the company's not named, but from uh, the in 2013 they looked at they got you know a decade of data from this company where people rated each other, and this company had both public and private reviews, and they found out that uh, 15% of users would give a bad private review, but only 4% would give a bad public huh. review. So fully 11% of those people were not willing to actually give a bad review, um, and so what you see is. At first, ratings were sensible. In 2007, the average uh, vendor or whatever was getting a 3.74 from this company out of five. Mm-hmm. So an average score. But that's just mathematically, there's some feedback process where that mathematically ticks, ticks upward. And as it starts to go upward, people 
you know, get a sense of what the new normal is and grade accordingly. So nine years later in 2016, it had gone from 3.74 to 4.85. And because people were willing to criticize privately, but not publicly, the authors of the study opine that it, it's all some perceived cost uh-huh. of a bad grade. That might just be the guilty feeling you get by saying something bad about someone. You know, it violates the thumper dictum of if you can't say something nice, don't say anything at all. Right. Uh, or possibly, what if there's retaliation? Right. Can this person find out what I gave him and send me nasty emails? You don't see it. You don't see this phenomenon in like consumer reports type things where the recipient is inanimate. Like right. if you're grading a toaster or a Buick, uh, that kind of upcreep doesn't happen. But a but a film it does because it feels like you are I mean I guess there's that cutseling up to to uh uh art art project art because it's so subjective. I mean you see this in ratings of bands. I mean Pitchfork very famously was really harsh and you would get these kind of you know a pretty cool record would be happy to get a 6.5. Um and I think over time, that's... But that proves that people can interiorize the the different scale yeah. and not be psychologically put off. I mean, maybe if you're the artist, it still doesn't feel great to get a 6.5. But, it, but it, if you know it's a pitchfork 6.5... That's exactly right. I mean, you you would... At, at first, you'd get a pitchfork review and just be like, oh, man, I hate those people. I mean, that was your, that was your reaction. They're such snobs. But then you realize everybody you know got a 6.5. There's not... You know, some of the best records of the year didn't... Um, didn't meet their stringent criteria, I guess. And then you realize the ones that did get great reviews were garbage. And so, <laughs> you know, they are garbage people there, or were. My guess is the root of this whole thing, again, doesn't have to do with any particular side of the culture war, but is a broad psychological phenomenon that's well understood, and it's called illusory superiority. People tend to believe they're better than they are. It's also called the Lake Wobegon effect. Uh-huh. Do, you, do you know that reference? Like yeah, Gar- sure. Garrison Keillor. Everyone's always, above average. Yeah, all the children are above average in Lake Wobegon. And that's a funny joke about how we coddle our children and think our children are special, but it's really not inherent to any particular generation or time. People in general think they're better at things than they are. If you ask, here's a list of uh, results. If you ask people uh, if they're better than average at getting along with people, again, all these numbers should be 50%. Uh, 85% of people think they're better than average at getting along with others. If you ask people about intelligence, 65% of people think they're smarter than average. Huh. Um, and there's a weird corollary called the Downing effect, uh, which says that people who are actually smart think they're, will, will grade themselves lower than they should. And people who are actually dumb will grade themselves higher than they should. I mean, it's the definition of ignorance that you don't know how little you know. Right. The first thing they should teach dummies is that they're dumb. Yeah, right. And then then they can work from there. I think typically futurelings are going to be a group of people that think they're smarter than average. Well, hold on. Before we, before we predict, okay. let me do the rest of the numbers. And then we should, we should end with that. I think you're right. Uh, Ask people if they're above average drivers, 73%. Uh, and it gets way worse if you get into fields where um, people are trained to think they're authoritative experts. If you ask judges whether they're better than average, 90% of judges think they're better than average. Of course. 87% of MBAs think they're better than average at doing business things. Right. Whereas we know MBAs as a general class are 
are 80% worse than the average business person. Huge wastes of DNA. (laughs) And it leads to real economic factors. I mean, all these people trying to time and pick the stock market instead of buying index funds, the whole root cause of that is because 87% of them think they're good at it. Wow, of course. Like if that number was 27%, they would just be like, you know what? This never works for me. Just buy an index fund. Um, college professors, 94% of them think they're above average. I can, I can confirm that that is not true. <laughs> and this is my favorite. If you ask computer programmers, if they are in the top 5% of computer programmers, fully a third of them think they're in the top 5%. That's wonderful. So, you know, I can also confirm that. I mean, maybe that's true. a result of great inflation. They've been told their whole lives they were doing great. So predict the future of reputation and grading inflation for our for our uh, far distant listeners. Well, you know, the one that I come up against the most often, weirdly, is that uh, as a vintage clothing shopper and uh, and um, like I'm a not I'm certainly not a connoisseur, but but like an aficionado. You have a good eye in men's clothes, which are measured according to just a tape measure. Uh, uh, in 1942, a 44 long suit is still a 44 long because it's, you know, measured. That's a, that's a unit of length at 44. Right. Whereas in women's clothes, a, a, um, you know, a 10 in 1960 is now a two or a zero. Like as women, uh, have as all Americans, as people have gotten bigger, the women's sizing has changed so that it's it's very difficult when you're shopping for women's vintage clothes to know to have any comparison to contemporary sizes. And I think in women's clothes, even now, you will find that if you are a, a 14, that can mean six different things and basically you have to decide you know a, a, a like a, a 12 at J crew and a 12 at uh, Ann Taylor are super different they mean completely different things that's the whole problem when you get away from the bell curve you know if you had a bell curve everybody would kind of understand oh you know this means 20 percentile 20th percentile or whatever but once it becomes more of a subjective and a and a tribal thing, you know, uh, the kind of number you give, then you wind up with this thing where it means something different in different arenas. Because no, an, an Uber five might not be a Lyft five. Uh, the East German judges 10 might not be the uh, Canadian judges 10. Right. And, uh, you know, the dress barn size six might not be a banana Republic size. Six. And, and I think a big, or at least the perception of it is that, you know, women prefer to be a smaller size. So the grade follows the vanity is, uh, I guess this would be one problem that would be solved if we're speaking to some kind of hive mind. In a right. hive, you probably don't compare yourselves to other hives because they're too far away. Right. And you certainly wouldn't compare yourself to other members of the hive. It's not like my muscle cell cares if it's more striated than my cardiac cell. Uh, they'd just be different parts of the unit. I mean, as somebody that's worked in restaurants... And I started working in restaurants before there was a kind of universal expectation that people got paid 20% tip. Mm-hmm. In fact, 50, I remember when 15% tip came in because it had prior been 10% was the standard kind of – you threw 10% down. And then 15% seemed like, hey, this is what we give for exceptional service. But when I was young as working as a waiter, the tip was absolutely a grade, 
right? The diner. Yeah. And there was a bell curve. Yeah. The diner graded you. But when you're working in a restaurant, there are waiters that are really busting, you know, working hard. And there are waiters that are sort of slacking. Can the diner tell? Uh, the other Sorry, waiters the, can the, tell. Can the, uh, can the customer tell? The other, th- well, sure. I mean, the, you know, the customer is like, I asked for some extra butter 15 minutes ago. Where have you been? But, you know, servers could tell within one another. And, and when, when automatic tipping came in, everybody was grateful to get the money. But you get that feeling of like, I've been working my tail off all day. And that waiter is just kind of in the back smoking. But we're both, there's not that, it's not that big of a deal. Everybody would prefer to get 20%. But you don't, you, you don't as often get that extra um, acknowledgement that, that you're doing a better job than the other people in your, in your workplace. But if it comes from comparison, it's a little bit toxic, right? Well, it is, but you know, if you're a salesperson and you're getting a commission, yeah. that commission, you know, your pay is directly connected to your performance. But all you need to know is, am I paying my bills? Not, am I making more than Sam? Well, sure, but... That's not how the human that's mind not works. How the world works. I don't care if I get a 4.0. I just care that I get a better grade than Maisie Glotz. I think this would all go away if we get rid of numbers. You know, if whatever the cataclysm is that ends our civilization also gets rid of math. You know, this. I don't think you would have this if ratings were like, hey, did you find this guy? Did you find this service great, good, fair, or poor? Smiley face, medium face, frowny face. Dead face. Do you think? Do you think great inflation kicks in if it's because numbers just make it easy to divorce the actual quality from the uh, from the criteria? If the criteria are looking you right in the face, I think you do have to say like, "Yeah, the service was good. Oh, the service was fair. The butter took fifteen minutes." When we stayed at that hotel in Atlanta, did you give them a ten? Oh, I had to. The elevator told me to. And that concludes great inflation. Entry 542.JB0807, certificate number 45417 in the omnibus. Futurelings, in the unlikely event that grades still exist in your era, I'm going to give you all five out of five stars. Yay. And if iTunes still exists in their era, they should totally reciprocate. Sure. Please rate and review Omnibus But keep in mind that anything below a five means unlistenable garbage podcast. (laughs) That's right. Let us give you five out of five tentacles, five out of five, uh, like, turkey dinner uh, squeeze packets (laughs) for your contribution. Uh, Social media, of course, gets a one out of five score from us. Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram are terrible, although Instagram is better. At Omnibus Project, although it's owned by Facebook. We don't need to get into this every time. It's corporately worse. It's aesthetically a little better. They're all terrible. They all, uh, they all mess up your brain. Is that what you mean? I mean, yeah. they're, all, they're all terrible in the way that PCP is terrible. Yeah, that's right. That's all I'm saying. PCP isn't, isn't bad in and of itself. It it's an inner it little thing. It doesn't feel bad. No, it's, it's fine. It's us that are bad. Uh, you can go to at Ken Jennings on Twitter, and he is hilarious and super fun. Although I noticed the other day you made a joke about Rand Paul, and you got 1,000 angry replies from individuals. But I didn't get ratioed. 
No, you didn't because you got a lot of faves. I too. got I got like seventeen. I'm unratioable yeah, now. People love you. Like I get seventeen thousand uh, pats on the head for my one thousand angry Breitbart. It's folks. so annoying how popular you are on that format. Bunch of suck ups. I think it's it really is great inflation because, and you can hear you can see the mechanism is the. Uh, the people who would give the bad reviews sloughing off right. because they're sick of my BS. Right. And rightly so. Uh, but the problem is you have all those followers and I should have at least twice as many followers as I do. Please unfollow me and follow John. No, you can keep following Ken. It's not a, I don't, I don't want a ratio between us. I just want to have more followers than John Worcester, the uh, drummer Super for Chunk? Super Chunk. We should have a quality of opportunity. Like, Figure out how many followers John would have if he won Jeopardy yeah. a million times. Thank you. And then follow accordingly. Yeah. I don't I mean, I don't care if you like even use Twitter. You should sign up and follow me. Um, I'm on Instagram where I have a wonderful time. Ken is just a lurker there. Don't try to figure out which egg avatar is Ken. I have a more wonderful time because I never have to post. Uh, you Live can, in the dream. You can email us at theomnibusproject at gmail.com, and Ken will, once every couple of months, <laughs> forward me ones that are directed to me. If any. Uh, Patreon, most of them are just in praise of Ken. Patreon.com slash omnibusproject is how you uh, can support the show. We're extremely grateful for your contributions to help us keep this show on the air. Um we, we continue to be delighted. Despite the incipient global recession, uh, people continue to appreciate the show uh, to the tune of uh, a dollar amount. Yeah. Which, so, me, which means a lot. Thank it does. you. It does. Thank you. We understand if it's not viable for you. But if it is, we thank you for your support. We thank you. Um, go to our Facebook fan group, The Futurelings, also on Reddit uh, and Discord. There are Futurelings groups. They are all maybe the best places on the internet. They redeem Facebook 100%. Uh, They cannot redeem Reddit, however. And you can mail us things, including subscriptions to tractor magazines or Zimbabwean currency, at P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. Listeners, from our vantage point in the distant past, we have no idea how long this human civilization survived. We hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come. If the worst comes soon, however, this recording, like all our recordings, may be our final word. But if providence allows, we hope to return to you soon with another entry in the Omnibus.